eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I would argue that as the decommitments are going to happen in, in the 2021 class, Oregon could be hit, but they also could be a school that if they play college football this season, they have the year that you and I expect them to have, and that's to win the road, that's to win the Pac-12. They will benefit from players opening things back up again. Welcome into the Otson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem, and Eric Scopel is with me as always on today's show. And before we dive in to today's mailbag, I want to remind you guys out there that if you are not a VIP subscriber of DuckTerritory.com, you can do so for as low as $1 for your first month, $9.95 there after that. Inside scoop on the Oregon Ducks expert analysis and opinion. You get to read all the content across the entire 24-7 sports network. That means by subscribing to us at DuckTerritory.com, you're not just limited to to reading what we publish and what we have on our message boards. If Oregon is recruiting a player uh, like Troy Franklin and you want to know what the Washington insiders are hearing on their end, you can go and you can check out what our Washington site is reporting. Uh, if, if you want to go and then see what another school that's recruiting Troy Franklin is reporting, you can do the same thing as well. Uh, you also can subscribe for an annual membership, and that will save you over $40 over the course of the year when you compare it to the month-to-month price. So highly encourage you guys to do that. And it also is one way that you could support Eric and I to continue doing these free podcasts, and that is by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. So hopefully you guys can consider that if that isn't an option for you. And on today's show, Eric, we've got a lot of recruiting. I think recruiting is a hot topic for the mailbag. And it makes sense that it would be, given the success Oregon has and continues to have recruiting. And this question starts there. We're going to start with one of these. And it's kind of, I think, maybe suggesting, should we uh, – should we hold our horses a little bit here? So let's run through this from at Sega ducks underscore 75. Everyone gets excited about verbal commitments, but obviously there can be a change of heart come signing day. What percentage of verbal commits at Oregon at Oregon typically end up signing is Mario Cristobal's era different than previous coaching regimes. Hashtag Ots and audibles is a great question to start the show. Um, I went and pulled the numbers here. Um, the first five years of the decade from 2010 to 15, uh, and those were clearly years where Chip Kelly and Mark Helfrich were coaching, Oregon had five total deed commitments in the first five years. And two of them are pretty notable. I just wrote down Buda Baker in 2014 and Johnny Manzella in 2011. So they lost five players, but two are pretty notable guys. Over the last five years, they've had 33 deed commitments. So that's a drastic change from the first five years. But 
13 took place in 2018, the year where Willie Taggart left and that entire recruiting class kind of got flipped on its head. And seven happened the year before that and seven happened the year after that. So there was actually a three-year cycle um, where Oregon had 27 of those decommitments. And you, it should be worth noting a lot of coaching changes and turnover during that time. So the numbers suggest that the decommitment numbers are higher over the last five years. But I think we can acknowledge that a lot of that comes from coaching turnover. And we should say that the last two cycles, 2020 and this current cycle, there have been just six decommitted players um, from those two classes, obviously really strong recruiting cycles. Um, Matt, I think one thing with this cycle we should acknowledge, maybe this is part of where Sega was going, a lot of these players have not have committed sight unseen. They have not visited a lot of these schools. Are you expecting at some point here in the next, I guess, seven or eight months before all these players are signed, that there will be a lot of decommitments? Are you feeling pretty good? And just in general, how do you think uh, Mario Cristobal has done at retaining commitments during his time in Oregon? You know, I, I, looking, let's start with the commitments right now and the guys that Oregon has in the 2021 class and who could potentially leave. And, and I look at this group and there's 12 verbal commitments and 10 of the 12 have unofficially visited Oregon on their own dime at least once yeah. And so a lot of these guys that have committed aren't necessarily choosing Oregon sight unseen. They've, they've been on campus before. They've seen the facilities. They've met with the coaching staff. They've met with the academic personnel. Um, they've walked around Eugene and, and walked around the University of Oregon. So they have some kind of a feel of what they're committing to already. And so th this group then, I feel pretty – firmly that, that a lot of these guys are going to remain committed. Um, I, I, I do wonder, I mean, the two guys that haven't been on campus are Darian Barkins, a three-star cornerback from Matterday Catholic High School in Chula Vista, California, that's in the San Diego area. And don't be confused of the Matterday and the Santa Ana, California area, because they're two different Matterday high schools. Um, and then the other one is Jadarius Perkins, the junior college cornerback who plays his football at Mississippi Gulf Coast Community College. And Perkins is saying all the right things and is hammering home on social media. He was on our podcast uh, oh, about a week, week or two weeks ago about his commitment. And on that, he also talked about how he was solid with the Ducks. And um, so he's saying all the right things, but he's a guy that's a long ways away from Eugene, hasn't been here yet. And that's the recipe for someone that could potentially – decommit and I'm not trying to, to, to say Perkins is on decommit watch right but, but he fits that criteria he's not been here before he's a long way from home and he's made a commitment before doing you know do, visiting Oregon and so Oregon's gonna have to work a little extra hard to keep him there we know Alabama's offered Florida's offered Auburn is offered uh, it wouldn't surprise me if more of the SEC schools start offering especially now that Alabama has offered um, but and you then but you look at the guys that, that are are trending towards Oregon, and a majority of those guys have also visited the Ducks already for the you know ahead of the 2021 signing day period, and, and right now we're kind of in a dead period. So you know I I, I he, I'm hesitant to say that Oregon's going to see a, a rash of decommitments. Um, they've already had two. We should note that Anthony Beavers Jr. He's a player that. He's a four-star athlete. He's now committed to USC. 
He'd been on campus before. Josh Simmons had not, to my knowledge. Uh, and he was a, Josh Simmons was a four-star offensive guard. And, and quite frankly, I think um, Oregon has kind of upgraded in, in terms of yeah. offensive linemen. So, yeah, they lost a, a player in Simmons, but they've been able to go and land commitments from better players. Um, or they're trending in that direction where it would be another shock if they don't. Um, but you don't want to count things as happening before they actually do. So we'll, we'll have to hold there. But long, long-winded answer to this, I'm not too concerned. Uh, there may be one or two more that happen, um, but I don't feel like Oregon is going to get hit by, you know, a rash of decommitments of, you know, seven, eight, or, or nine guys. It's just not going to happen. And I guess following up on that, Matt, I, I look at this cycle as being weird, and, and you did a good job in terms of acknowledging that despite the recruiting, I guess, restrictions currently in place with on-campus visits and, and, and even visiting households, um, that Oregon has done a good job of at least building those relationships. Are you expecting this to be a cycle, maybe not even Oregon specifically, but where we do see at some point when there is the opportunity for visits to, to take place again, and that will obviously happen at some point this fall, um, hopefully potentially sooner. Uh, are, are you expecting there to be a, a fallout nationally with a bunch of schools? And, and are you expecting maybe Oregon to benefit in some way from that, from maybe there's a couple of prospects that have verbally committed elsewhere and haven't visited those schools, but also haven't visited Oregon. And do you see them benefiting potentially from, from some of that as well? Yeah. I, I mean, Corey Foreman decommitted from Clemson mm-hmm. and he's the number one recruit in the country he became like the first commit to decommit from the Clemson Tigers in like four or five seasons, just a a crazy span of time. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Oregon is the leader or that they're probably even second for Corey Foreman. Right. But the first domino has fallen and and that was getting him to back off his commitment to Clemson. I mean, Oregon went out and, and has gotten involved again. And uh, they were a major player before he committed to Clemson. So, you know, it, it wouldn't be the, the biggest shock in the world if Oregon signed Corey Foreman. Uh, not at all. And then I think you, you, know, you look at a couple other players, or one in particular that's committed to LSU right now, and um, that's a linebacker from Southern California that, uh, for whatever reason, the name is escaping me. From, I think it's Ray John Davis. Yes, Ray John Davis. Um, he is a – top 40 player in the country, outside linebacker from Matter Day High School, teammate of um, Kayon Ware Hudson. He is also very close friends with um, Jalen Davies, that is a four-star cornerback from Matter Day High School that Oregon is in, in a really good spot with. And um, there's certainly a ton of smoke right now that Rajon could, could be decommitting from LSU. And if that were to happen, Oregon would be – he fits a need because, well, you'd argue Oregon, you know, Oregon doesn't need linebackers because they signed Flo and they signed Sewell and they the Duke and they have Keith Brown. Well, a lot of those guys are inside linebackers, whereas Davis is a pure outside linebacker prospect and uh, fits the need for Oregon in 2021. So I would argue that as the decommitments are going to happen in, in the 2021 class, Oregon could be hit, but they also could be a school that – if they play college football this season and they have the year that you and I expect them to have, and that's to win the road, that's to win the PAC 12. Um, they will benefit from players opening things back up again. 
think that's a good discussion that I'm sure we'll keep an eye on throughout the rest of the summer into the fall. And then obviously through February of kind of what is going to happen with this cycle. Will it be different because of COVID and, and the restrictions? Will there be more decommitments? I think all of this is going to be interesting to kind of follow and, and watch unfold in real time. So um, and it'll be interesting to see. And again, if Oregon benefits or, or is hurt by this one way or the other or, or what it is, it'll be kind of interesting just to see the differences this cycle. Staying on the recruiting topic here from at Skoducks FP, is there an aspect of recruiting where the coaches don't necessarily go after the top prospects if the position is stacked by players so they can develop behind who they have now? Or do they want the best players every year? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thanks again, Skoducks, for using the hashtag. Uh, I, it's kind of an interesting question here in terms of how they're evaluating, I guess, talent. But Matt, Matt do you think they look at a cycle like maybe inside linebacker this year? Would that this is maybe let's use this as an example? Would Oregon shy away from some of the top inside linebacker recruits because they already have guys like Justin Flo and Noah Sewell, who I just mentioned, or, or are they not going to shy away from trying to bring in the top players every year? Maybe I'm wrong, but basing off the conversations we've had with Mario Cristobal whether it's about the team aspect or recruiting, I don't think he shies away from, from going after you know, one of the best players in the country at a certain position because they recruited well at that position two or three years ago. He's all about bringing in as much talent as possible and fostering a culture of competition and best man wins, best man plays. And, you know, trying to bring as much talent to the program. So I don't think he, I don't think Oregon necessarily shies away from recruiting the best inside linebackers in the country. I mean, Keith Brown is one of the best inside linebackers in the country. He's a top five player at the position and Oregon signed the number one and the number two inside linebackers last year. So right there, you know, they targeted, you know, Keith Brown and, and they got him. Now you could then argue that Oregon, says, hey, let's be realistic too. We want to sign the best player possible at the position, but we're not going to just go and, and sign, you know, multiple guys, especially when we have small numbers for a recruiting class in 2021. And while we need to add an inside linebacker, we don't necessarily need to add two or three inside linebackers. And so maybe they've, they've, they've gone out and they've added another really good inside linebacker, one of the best in the country in 2021. And, but they but they're not overextending themselves in the process of doing that. Going out and trying to find a second or a third, you know, inside linebacker might overextend the program at a position where only you know two can play on the field at one time. I just don't think the concept of shying away or I know he didn't use that word and I've been the one using it, but just of, of not attacking recruiting and going after the best prospects makes a lot of sense in the big picture. I get it from a short-term perspective of, yeah, maybe players don't want to compete at Oregon because of what they have at inside linebacker. But the reality is if you don't try to go out and land good recruits at every position group, every single cycle, at some point that puts you at a deficit and you might be looking really good in the short term. But if you don't take any good inside linebackers in 2021, and I'm not insinuating that's the, take, that's the case, but you would then look at, you know, 2023 when Sewell and, and Flo would be gone and you might have a totally different room because you, I guess, didn't continue to work really hard to bring in the talent every cycle and it could hurt you long-term, you know, if, if that's the route you take, I, I just don't understand the logic behind it. I mean, I, I get the concept in some regard, but I think you, if you can go get a really good player and he still wants to play there, I mean, that's the other part is that the recruit, not every recruit is afraid of the competition and not every recruit's going to say, 
well, they just signed Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. There's no chance I'm going to play. A lot of these kids are very confident in their abilities and, and we probably see that as a, a welcome opportunity. So um, I think an interesting conversation and question, but I don't necessarily think you would ever go into a cycle thinking let's not take the best possible guys because we've already had good guys in this position last cycle. Third question here before we hit the break from at quack attack 74 with all these crystal ball predictions for these four and some near five-star recruits coming to Oregon. Is it possible to finish in the top three in the final recruiting rankings when the 2021 cycle is completely over hashtag Ots and audibles. Um, I'm going to run through some information here that leads me to believe that that's going to be difficult to do, but not like fully impossible. Um, credit to Kevin Wade over the weekend. He did a calculating the class predictions he took the, the uh, current 12 commitments and then added 10 players that have crystal ball predictions to Oregon. So that's a 22-player class, which I think is pretty close to the number they'll, they'll ultimately sign. If you do that exercise, Oregon's score goes all the way to 285.9, which is a very high score. But you look at the last five cycles, and that would not be a top three recruiting class in any of them. Um, They'd be really close. They'd been really close in 2019 when Texas was third with 287.7. But for the most part, they'd be 10, 20 points even back. Last year, uh, Clemson was number three with a 309.73 class. 2018, uh, Texas had 300.1. In 2017, Florida, sorry, Georgia had 301.6. And in 2016, it's a little closer, 294.83. So um, my, my response to that is, it could. This is all the guys we think they're going to land in June. Things might break totally different. Matt and I just ran through the deep commitments. They ran through a recruit like Rajon Davis, who obviously is not included here because he's currently committed to another school. We don't know what's going to happen. It's certainly possible they end up in that top three, but it would basically require that these crystal ball predictions that Quack Attack is referencing, there have to be other players included there. Um, because you get to the number of 285.9, which is really high, gets you probably a top five class, but top three, at least based upon what we've seen the last couple cycles, last five cycles, I should say, um, doesn't look like it would cut it for a top three class. Yeah, they're going to have to sign a five-star if they want to get a top three class, or the only other way to to do that is to get above the 25-man scholarship class, Uh and and Oregon's not going to do that. They're – I mean, I won't say they're not, but I just don't see a scenario that's probable that could play out in which Oregon signs over 25 players. Like, that, that's the only way you can do it. But, you know, if you don't sign a five-star, you have to go out and you've got to be able to go and, and, and find um, a, a recruiting class that is going to be over 26, 27, 28. And so now the question becomes, can, can Oregon sign a five-star player? Um, it's going to be difficult. I, I think Foreman is, is maybe your best bet of the, of the group of guys right now that are current five-stars. Maybe Troy Franklin, who could commit to Oregon uh, in the next, you know, a couple months or so. Um, he, he could maybe be a guy that uh, could grow into being a five-star if they play a high school football season. But – um, it's going to be difficult even with signing a five-star player to get there um, that, that way you're under 25. But uh, I, I just don't see a scenario out there right now where um, with the way the other schools that are currently recruiting in the top 10, 
and how many players they're going to sign. The Oregon signs a, a top three class. And look, it, uh, we we could be we could be wrong here. I mean, we could see a scenario play out where Oregon loses one game in the regular season. They win the Pac-12 championship game and they make the college football playoff. And then they somehow, um, you know, this team is 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 far ahead of of expectations. And maybe they win a playoff game and they get to the championship game. Or or that th- that's probably not even relevant anymore. Just getting to the playoff is probably important. And we see Washington struggle in 2020. We see USC struggle in 2020. And we, we see a program that's trending up right now in Oregon continue to ascend while the rest of the Pac-12 falls behind. And we see the momentum carry over into the recruiting world where Corey Foreman and a JT Tuomalu and a Troy Franklin and Jalen Davies and a, maybe a Rajon Davis you know, flips his commitment to, from LSU to Oregon and then maybe Oregon could, could go in and, and they add Xavier Worthy and they add Dante Fortin. And all of a sudden, they've, they've, they've got a class now that's got a couple five-star players that filled some needs. And then they add Kingsley Swamatia and they add Bryce Foster. And all of a sudden, now you're, you're, you're talking about a class that probably, yeah, will finish top three. But how realistic is that scenario on June 9th uh, or June 10th, excuse me, um, probably not the most probable one out there doesn't it's it's probably got a, some kind of a chance but you know to to quote the you know dumb dumber line of so you're saying there's a chance when it's like oh 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 one percent you know it's kind of about where, where, where we're at right now with that particular scenario playing out and, and i should acknowledge and i want i should have said this when i was running through before that in kevin's piece which i should say just so those listening Go check it out. It's, 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 it's interesting. It came out on Friday, uh, calculating the potential of Oregon's 2021 recruiting class. At that 285.9 number I mentioned earlier, that's significantly better than Oregon's best recruiting class ever, which came in 2020 um, when they had 278.9 or 277.9. Sorry. So it, it would actually be the best class in program history. It just wouldn't quite get to that top three threshold that Matt and I are talking about. And the other thing is obviously, and I think Matt addressed it a little bit, is, is what is, you know, if Oregon gets there, what are the classes around them doing? And it really looks like Ohio State is going to have one of the best classes in a really long time. And it looks like some other schools around the country, just based on the rankings right now and kind of the room they have, are also set to have really good classes. So I, I agree with Matt in terms of I think it's possible that the ceiling feels like it could be the best in school history, but probably not top three. I mean, how, how greedy do we want to be here? Like, oh, we can be greedy. Is, is, is best class in school history not enough? Does it have to be top three, too? <laughs> exactly. All right, let's take a quick break. You're listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel here, and um, continuing our mailbag edition. And we're really looking into the future of the Oregon football program, whether that's recruiting or a question like this one, which is number four. Fourth question, and I guess it's a little recruiting here. It's like a 50-50 recruiting question from at TVO, two scoops. What is more critical to a Ducks natty run within the next two to three years? A solid finish to the 2020 recruiting cycle or the tenure of Andy Avalos? It seems it's not an if, but when, for him to take a head coaching job somewhere else. If he leaves after the 2020 season, do we lose a little steam? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thank you, TVO2 Scoops, for using the hashtag. I think that's like, I think we had like almost 100% use of the hashtag. So good job, everybody, for, for doing that. Um, I'll start here. I, I think this is a tough question in terms of the big picture, but I, I would feel like if Andy Avalos leaves after the 2020 season, uh, to me that would certainly be a bigger deterrent and a bigger impact than anything you would do in the 2020 recruiting class, even if it is a recruiting class that kind of matches some of the stuff we were just talking about before the break, where it's the best in program history. It's not top three, but it's top five or six or somewhere in that range. I think even there, the loss of Avalos is huge. And that's not to say that you couldn't bring in talent to help overcome that kind of loss. But, like, let's, let's be honest about what he's done at Oregon right now. I mean, the defense last year has a really significant – has a strong argument that that's the best defense I've seen in my lifetime. And I'm 31 years old. Um, it's certainly in the conversation. It's certainly, to me, the best of the decade and probably the best since the turn of the century in 2000. Um, and he has a huge fingerprints on that. So, yeah, if he's gone after this season, I think that's a huge loss for Oregon trying to win a national championship between now and maybe, let's say, the 2023 season like you acknowledged. Um, obviously, the recruiting is huge. And if Oregon lays a dud, that really impacts things. And if Oregon goes out and hits a bunch of home runs, that impacts things too. But maybe Matt disagrees, but I think Avalos is, is so incredibly valuable that the possibility of losing him in the next one to two to three years would have a greater impact than possibly what you could get out of one recruiting cycle. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go the opposite. I think, right. I think recruiting is probably more important right now because, and that's, and this seems really just strange because I'm not trying to say that Andy Avalos is replaceable because easily replaceable because he's not. But I feel like Mario Cristobal's track record of finding really good coaches, that's fair, is something to fall back on that if if and when Andy Avalos becomes a head coach somewhere, I'm pretty confident in Crystal Ball's hiring ability to go out and find a very talented defensive coordinator, whether that's a guy that's currently in that position somewhere else, or maybe that's a head coach that gets fired in the way that they were able to land Joe Moorhead for offensive coordinator, uh, or maybe that's an, a position coach that's an up-and-comer right now that we don't know about. Um, but I, I feel pretty confident that – Oregon will be able to find a comparable coach in Andy Avalos. And there are some out there. There's not many, 
you know, because he is one of the best in the country. Uh, I think that's pretty evident seeing him work with Oregon's 2019 defense. But I look at the roster completion of Oregon, and let's just go off. Our, our 2020 numbers haven't been updated yet because athletes haven't enrolled in the school across the country. But our 2019 rankings from a college team composite score, we can base it off of that. And Oregon's 2019 team was 17, the 17th most talented team in the country. That team featured one five-star player, 31 four-stars, and 51 three-star or lower recruits. And just to compare those numbers to three of the best teams in the country, Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, Alabama has 11 five-stars, 58 four-stars. Ohio State has 13 five-stars. Georgia has 14 five-stars. Clemson – you know, they have been one of the best teams in the, con- in the country, and their talent gap is, is a little bit below where Alabama, Ohio State, and Georgia are at with seven five-stars and 33 four-star recruits, but it's still considerably higher than what Oregon has. Um, I, I look at, at, at talent acquisition, and Oregon's numbers are going to go up for 2020. We, we know that for certain. We just don't know yet because we're waiting for everyone to, to, to enroll, and we can't you know, we, we can't project and say that's official. Um, but Oregon's numbers will go up this year for the 2020 season, and they'll, and they'll go up even more uh, the way Oregon's recruiting for 2021 for that season. So I, I argue they need to continue recruiting at a high level because you can scheme and you can, you can skill develop all you want, but eventually you get to a point where it's more about the Jimmys and the Joes and the X's and the O's. And – Oregon is catching up to that regard where uh, right now, if, if they play some teams in the country, uh, they are going to be at a, at a talent disadvantage. It may, it may not be in the starting lineup, but it'll be felt when guys get tired and guys do get tired. No matter how hard you train guys get hurt, no matter how hard you train for that as well, those things happen and who you have behind your starters matters so much more than maybe who you have as starters. Because I, I still believe, Oregon's 2016 and their 2017 teams, their starting lineups weren't bad. It was the guys that were behind them. There was a significant drop-off from a starter to a role player, and that's considerably improved. I think that's probably aside from the sheer physical development that Oregon's gone through, Eric, the last couple of seasons with Cristobal as head coach. I think the second most noticeable difference is the talent drop-off has – been significantly cut down from starter to backup. And I think I, I should say, I think the thing here, if we're just in terms of what we're trying to talk about, the important thing is, is what is the alternative to what is taking place? So a solid finish in 2021 is the alternative, just a terrible finish. And if that's the case, I probably agree with Matt. Like if they don't bring in any talent in 2021 and this class ends up being about where they average over the last decade or so, which is 14 to 20, somewhere in that 15, somewhere in the teens, probably that's different than they still recruit well. And it's like a, it's a class that, you know, is 10th or 12th or something like that. And I guess the alternative to Andy Avalos is, is that a national average caliber defensive coordinator? Or is it like what Matt is suggesting where it's somebody that is close to that level? And obviously what Mario Cristobal has shown so far is that he can recruit there. And I think, the one thing that is interesting is, and I've gone back and watched a lot of 
games from 2012 to 2014 in particular, just because those seasons, I, I think, were, were really fun to go back and watch. There was such a significant difference watching Oregon's 2012 defense when it was coached under Nick Aliotti and its 2014 defense when it was coached under Don Pelham. I don't want to make this a let's. I don't want to make this like a hate on Don Pelham segment, but the reality was, I think Oregon lost itself a national championship because they didn't hire or they didn't. They made a mistake in that hire. Um, and that's not to suggest that Mario Cristobal would do that, but I, I do think it's important that we, we acknowledge that it, it, it depends on who they would replace Avalos with. And if it is a national average or it's somebody comparable, then okay, then maybe that isn't going to hurt them as much, but it depends on who they hire. If they go out and they miss on a hire and it's a Don Pelham equivalent hire um, and the recruiting class difference is, I guess, the, the same, I, I think that becomes interesting to think about too of, because we've seen it at Oregon, at least I, I know I feel this way. I think Oregon wins the national championship in 2014 with a different defensive coordinator. I think the way that that second half played in particular was a close game until the second half. Um, Oregon couldn't stop Ezekiel Elliott, and they kind of ran two different plays every single down, and Oregon just couldn't figure out a way to get enough players in position to stop him. And I know there was a talent disparity. I know Ezekiel Elliott is probably one of the best running backs Oregon has ever faced in a football game, but – um, I, I do think it, it matters who they replace him with. And I, and I do think with, with Avalos, they would have to replace him with a really, really, really good coach. And so far, at least Cristobal, his track record seems to indicate that that would be what would take place. All right, fifth question from at Benjamin Smucker. And this might be my favorite because it's just a weird one. You had to kind of think a little outside the box. But from at Benjamin Smucker, if you could clone five current Oregon players, but they have to play on the opposite side of the ball, who are you selecting and where are they playing? Um, I don't know, Matt, do you want me to run through my five or do you want to do some alternate picks here? Let's do alternate picks. Okay, let me start with the first one that came to my mind and then I'll send it your way. Um, my first pick was Javon Holland and that was largely because all of last season, everyone was saying he was a, or he was saying, I think even, he was a better receiver than defensive back. Um, and so if that is somehow true, because we know Holland is potentially a top 15, I don't know, at least a first round pick, potentially next year's draft that's scary thinking about what he'd be as a receiver. I assume you also had Holland on your list, Matt. Yeah, I had, I had Javon Holland on my list. And for obvious reasons that you just said, um, he played receiver in high school. He's come out and said that he would be a really good receiver. Uh, Oregon's offensive coaches have come out and said that he would be a really good receiver. He's just also a very good um, defensive player as well. So I think Holland is the obvious one. Um, I'll, my second one is a guy that signed with Oregon as a defensive back and is now playing receiver. That's Jalen Red. Um, I think people kind of forget the fact that he was a four-star cornerback when he committed to Oregon in, in, as part of the 2017 recruiting class uh, to Mark Helfrich. And Oregon brought him in, and Willie Taggart bumped him over to the offensive side of the ball and played him in the slot. And I know there was offense discussed when he was being recruited by Helfrich, but he was rated as a four-star cornerback. And so I would, that would be my second guy to move him over to um, the defensive backfield, even though Oregon is completely loaded there. Yeah. I, I also had Jalen Red on my list. So let's just cross that one off. Um, we both had those two. Uh, my third one here is another player that was recruited by some schools to play defense, ends up playing offense in Oregon. That's Brian Addison. Um, we remember a couple of years ago when he came over last minute from UCLA. He had signed with UCLA. The plan was he was going there. Didn't work out for him to get into school. He ends up at Oregon kind of last minute. 
there was about a week or so there where it was up in the air if he was going to play wide receiver or if he was going to play safety. Um, ultimately, obviously, we know where, where it landed and he's playing wide receiver. Like Matt just stated with Red in terms of the tap depth of talent he'd be entering at that position group. I don't know if Brian Addison even factors into like the two deep right away, but he's at least a rec- somebody who was recruited to play that position. I remember watching him at the opening up in Portland um, the summer before his senior year when he was playing safety and he was everywhere. He made so many big plays, just covers a ton of ground, um, a really good athlete. So Addison uh, was the third player that I had on my list. Yeah, I, I had Addison as well. We're um, going to have a lot of repeats probably. <laughs> I, I think, uh, and we don't compare notes. We said that multiple times on this episode, on this show, whenever we do stuff like this, we don't compare notes. Um, so I think it kind of gives you kind of a consensus feel. My fourth player that I picked, and I think you're going to have him on this list too. <laughs> I, I, I'm, just, I'm just guessing I have knowing you. Um, I'm going to list Panay Sewell as a defensive end, seeing as how athletic he is at offensive tackle, how big he is. Um, if he had to play defense, if he, and you had to pick a lineman from Morgan's offensive line to move over to that side of the football, he would be my pick. And, I mean, he, he could play tight end and uh, in my eyes if, if he really wanted to. Um, and so I think he could play defensive end at Oregon as well. Yeah, I think we're going to have like a – we might have the same five here. We'll see in a second. But uh, yeah, I had Penny Sewell. My notes were move him to defensive line. I wrote D tackle just because he's huge. I wrote he's effing huge. That has to help for something. He might have bad leverage due to his height. That was my notes on Penny Sewell playing defensive tackle or defensive end. So we're in agreement there. Um, it's just one of those things where he's clearly probably the best like pound for pound athlete on the team. I mean, we're just being realistic here in terms of how big he is and athletic he is. You put him on defense, I know it would be growing pains, but eventually like he'd be a mess to try to guard. So <laughs> I don't think you want to face him. And then I'm going with his brother for my fifth pick. I'm going with Noah Sewell um, going from linebacker to running back, just because we saw him in high school as a running back, just be an absolute uh, tank out there. I mean, he was a steam engine. No one could really stay in front of him. Obviously they're a little smaller in Utah high school than, than what he's going to see as a college player. But um, we saw Noah Sewell's athleticism and explosiveness uh, as a running back in high school. So I, I used him for my fifth pick. I want to just say one other player I considered, and you probably have some of these as well, Matt, uh, was David Davis because he's played both offense and defense already. But uh, I think from an upside perspective, the players I picked, I feel like have a little higher upside than what Davis has done so far. This is, this is our lone Ooh, I like it. area where we are different. Um, I, I didn't consider, and I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't consider any of the true freshmen. Mm-hmm. So that's my mistake because your Noah Sewell one is is one that automatically should be listed. But my fifth guy was Triquez Bridges, cornerback uh, at Oregon. He is six foot three, and what what are the what are the traits that we continue to hear about Oregon's recruiting approach at the receiver position in the last couple of seasons? They need to add guys that have size and that have great length, and that describes Triquez Bridges perfectly. And he was a player that um, as a high school senior, or excuse me, yeah, as a, as a high school senior, he set the state record in Alabama for career interceptions with 36. He returned 13 of those for a touchdown. So this is a guy that has extremely good ball skills as well. Um, quite honestly, the way Oregon was – positioned at receiver during the season last year, I'm kind of surprised now that I'm thinking about it, that 
at least during fall camp when Will Hoyt and Waters both got hurt, that they didn't explore the idea of TriQuest Bridges playing the receiver position. Um, this would be a guy that I, I just think if he had to play offense, if he had to pick someone on defense to play offense, Bridges fits a lot of what Oregon needs at the receiver position from a physical standpoint, and it becomes a can-you-do-it-on-the-field type of deal. That's a good pick, too. And I should note, and the only reason I know this is I, for some reason, was watching all of the defensive backs practice passing the football before the Rose Bowl. I, don't, I was down there longer than normal. Tricos Bridges had the best arm of any defensive player, like throwing the football. He actually had a, he threw the ball probably 40, 50 yards in the air easily with a flick. Um, so maybe he'd be a good quarterback option as well. Um, two others that I just thought of that are like so obvious that we should have mentioned are Hunter Campmoyer and DJ Johnson, two players who actually started their careers on defense and are now playing offense. So those are probably two guys that are pretty good um, picks as well. But um, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of covering most of the bases. I'm looking through here to make sure we didn't let any other ones slip through the cracks. I know Popo Amave was recruited a little bit by some schools to play offensive line um, at a high school as well. He plays nose tackle for Oregon. But um, was there anyone else you considered, Matt? I know I mentioned Daywood and, and a couple other players that have actually played both sides of the ball. Is there anyone else you thought of? Um, you're, you're, you brought up Daywood Davis. That makes a lot of sense for me as well. Um, I, I think Micah Pittman could be a, yeah. an intriguing like safety. He's very big. Um, you know, he's kind of built like a running back almost. And so I think he would be a really interesting, uh, defensive back prospect. Trevin Mai would be someone I would consider playing tight end. Um, cause he's six foot five and he's just a freak athlete and he's, He's like almost 260 now. Yeah, uh, yeah. Outside linebacker guy. That would be someone I would look at and consider um, on from defense to offense. But outside of Popo, I, I don't really see anyone else on defense in my eyes that just scream, this guy could be really – maybe Michael Wright. Maybe Michael Wright as a receiver. That's a good one. Yeah, I like that. No, no, we know, we know Cyrus Abibiliko has good form tackling based on how he uh, yes. tackled that streaker last. Was that last season? I think it was. <laughs> um, so maybe he could be – and he, I think he was recruited by some schools to play linebacker too. So um, another candidate. I think you look through the roster here, there's probably a bunch of guys that have played a ton of different spots and done so at a high level growing up. That would fit. I know Javon Wilson. I know that, I'm just looking at the running back list. Another guy who played linebacker. We don't need to spend all day doing this one. It's a fun exercise. So uh, thank you for – the question at Benjamin Smucker. I had a really fun time kind of running through that. And we're going to finish the show with a question from at SegaDuck75. And I just realized I gave him two questions this week. So Sega, don't expect one next week. That's my, uh, that's my fault. Um, <laughs> I'm putting two of yours in there. But uh, two good questions this week. So uh, everybody else needs to get, I guess, on his level. In 2012, I remember that Marcus Mariota created a lot of buzz when there was an open practice leading up to the Rose Bowl. Darren Thomas was the quarterback. Is Tyler Shuck creating similar buzz to this, or is it not nearly at the same level? Hashtag aughts and audibles. I'm going to let you start, Matt, because I was not covering that Oregon team um, when Mariota was coming up. Well, when Darren Thomas elected to go pro, my first reaction wasn't, oh, no, this isn't good news for Oregon in, in 2012 that – it was, oh, no, is, is this the right decision by Darren Thomas to, to get picked? I felt like Oregon was going to be fine with – now, granted, I thought Brian Bennett was going to be right. the, the starter um, at that time, but I, I, had pretty good, I had pretty high confidence in Bennett being a very good player, and we had certainly heard a ton about Marcus Mariota as well up to that point. 
Um, I, I, I think it, it's, it's kind of cheating because I'm going to say both. Um, it's not the same regard that I don't think everyone is hearing the same things about Tyler Shuck as they were about Marcus Mariota, um, how he was better than his, his predecessor. Um, I don't know if Tyler Shuck is going to be better than Justin Herbert. I, I, but I also don't think Justin Herbert is going to operate under the same uh, same roster, same schematic makeup that Tyler Shuck will. And so it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if Tyler Shuck, statistically speaking, comes out and produces equal, if not better, numbers than what Justin Herbert did the last two seasons, the last three seasons at Oregon. Um, I, I think the expectations are very high for Shuck to be very good. And I think it's very fair to say that the expectations for Shuck or whoever is the quarterback at Oregon, maybe that's Anthony Brown Mm -hmm. in 2020 is one of college football's best quarterbacks. I'm not going to say the best. I'm not going to say one of the three best, but you know, pick 10 quarterbacks. And I think, I think it's a fair comparison, maybe 12 that Oregon's quarterback is listed in that group. It's an interesting question, I think, to reflect upon. I think there's certainly been a lot of discussion about Tyler Shuck even before Justin Herbert was gone, and it wasn't like they were talking with the understanding of, like, he's better than Herbert. I never heard that. But there was just a lot of, I think, and maybe this is where I can draw similarities, even though I didn't, wasn't around Mario. I think I was just about when I started covering was at that Rose Bowl time. But I, I just look back and think, with Chuck conversations we've had with defensive players and offensive players within the program about just kind of what he, who he is. And there just seems like there's a ton of optimism from the players too. And I think that part is part of why you're, you're, there's so much excitement is it's not just the coaches. The coaches have a lot of really nice things, but I, I go back to things that were said of, of Chuck from, from teammates offense and defense last fall during the season. And, it just felt like there was a lot of mutual respect. And I think that means a lot. And, and again, like you said, it isn't a certainty that Anthony Brown isn't the quarterback or is the quarterback. We don't know what's going to happen with all of this, but I do think it's fair to at least draw some comparison because Oregon hasn't had you know, a little, think about that since 2012, this is really like the first real quarterback to me, at least quarterback, real quarterback competition that we're, that we're going to have here. I mean, I know Justin Herbert and Dakota Prukop kind of competed a little bit that was a weird one because Herbert I don't think anyone we talked about this last week when because you were covering the team I wasn't then either but just of like there was a sense that Herbert was really good and a lot of optimism but I don't think everybody kind of thought Prukop was being brought in to be the starter and that was a job that Herbert kind of won during the season it wasn't like a fall camp quarterback position battle and then you go back to you have to go back to like Vernon Adams they brought him in knowing he was going to be the quarterback and then you have Marcus Mariota so to me this feels like the first time since 2012 that there is at least some uncertainty going into the fall about who the quarterback is. Does that feel fair to you, Matt? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. So I, I mean, I, I think, I think that I think, and that's part of what makes this interesting. I think there's a lot of hype and, and excitement around Chuck, but I also think just the fact that we have a real quarterback competition that we're going to have this fall is, is something I know I'm excited to follow. Cause that just hasn't been something I don't think I've covered a quarterback, a real quarterback competition. Um, at Oregon since I've been covering the beat. And I think that would be something that'll be fun to, to at least see how that plays out this fall. Yeah, it, it's, 
it's going to be interesting because I mean, there was a little bit of a battle when Prukop showed up, but everyone kind of knew it was going to be Prukop, um, at least early on, because at the time, we really hadn't seen a graduate transfer transfer somewhere and not win the job. Right. Um, you know, you, you're kind of positioning yourself to sit, you know, at, the, at that time to say that. But now it's, it's happened in more than a few places now where a graduate transfer doesn't win the starting quarterback job. It happened at Washington State this past season. Um, so I, I, I think there's that. And then um, you also look into the fact that, like you said, a lot of these guys have kind of – the heir parents have kind of just blown you know, themselves – blown the competition out of the water leading right. up to their first year. And maybe we'd have, we would have seen that if spring football played out with, with Tyler Shuck. That's a good point. We, we don't know. Um, you know, but we, what we do know is people within the program, Chris Ball himself has gone on the record saying that he entered spring football, Tyler Shuck, as the number one quarterback, and he left spring football, even though they only got four practices, as the number one quarterback. And so it's up to Anthony Brown to take it from him. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. Who knows? If we had seen a spring and Brown would have been here for that, and I think there's a good chance he would have been there at least for part of the second half. Um, or maybe not, but I think that would, it could have taken place. You're right. We might be in a situation where we're saying in June that this is similar to the Mariota thing and that this is no different than these past quarterback competitions, quote-unquote, because it's pretty clear who the starter is. I think we both feel like Shuck's going to be the starter. I did my 20 best um, Oregon football players for the 2020 season. That's a story uh, series that I'm doing this week my second installment that went up on Tuesday and I had Chuck 15th on the team in terms of players that are most uh, I guess valuable to the outcome of the season the best players the biggest contributors and I think that's about a, a fair spot for him because there's a lot of really good players coming back he has the chance though I think to be a top 10 top five most important player on this team if he takes that step and, and, and really is what we think he might be able to be because I do think the ceiling is very very high I've, I've been on the record of saying that basically since he's been on campus. But um, I, I think Shuck has a huge upside, and I think Matt agrees too. All right, that's going to do it for us here on the Austin Audible's podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening to today's show, submitting your questions during uh, this time. And without sports, it, it's, you know, this helps us, uh, you know, know we're going to produce some really quality, good content that you Duck fans are looking for and are consuming because our, our listens on these mailbags are really good. Um, the data behind that shows us that. And so we highly uh, – we, we continue to send these in. And for Eric and myself, thank you very much for um, continuing to listen. And we, we see the demand for this podcast is growing every single week. So thank you very much. We're very appreciative of all the support that you guys have given to the show. Uh, and we will talk to you later this week on the next Odds and Audible's podcast. So for Eric Scopel, I'm Matt Bream. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, fellas. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with h track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. 
Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.